Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Well, the question at my house um, this last week repeatedly was, when is it going to be summer? I don't know about you if you've been wondering that, but my kids constantly are asking me every time it rains or every time it's somehow 30 degrees again, right? When is it going to be summer? Like I thought we had that one day where it was like the sun was shining and like everything felt like, you know, July was around the corner. And I I mean, Laura and I sat outside late in the afternoon with with coats on because it was still actually kind of cold, um, but just like letting the sun bake on us, like like the, the, the warmth of the sun. It was like we hadn't seen it in months somehow, but just the, 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 the rays coming down and feeling like, ah, winter is going to be done. Spring is going to come. And um, I don't know about you, but there's, there's not a lot of options if you live in Minnesota for that kind of thing in the dead of winter. I mean, your options are kind of like, hey, you travel somewhere else, get yourself a little bit of sun, go on a vacation, um, and that's fine, right, right? But um, for me, like, there's really only one reprieve, the zoo, right? The zoo is it for me. I mean, like, you might say, why not travel? And I'd say, well, I have toddlers, right? But like, but the zoo is it, because if you go to the zoo, the moment that you step into, like, the Minnesota Zoo Tropics Trail, or like the Como Zoo Conservatory, and you hit that sort of like heat and humidity just lands on you, something happens. You're just like, oh, I was made for this. And like, if you haven't already, like the hat comes off, the coat comes off, the scarf comes off, the gloves comes off, like everything, like you have been transported in that moment to another place in the world, maybe even another world that's like a rainforest of sorts. Colossians 3 is saying that the church is supposed to be like that. The church is supposed to be like walking into a gospel greenhouse where the humidity, the change in temperature, even the smells and sounds is so stark that you walk in and go, I've walked into another place in the world, maybe even another world all of itself. There's something about the environment that the church is supposed to create, that environment of love and gentleness and kindness and truth and grace and patience, that that one that admits wrongs and asks forgiveness, that should just sort of feel like a wave of pleasant humidity to a Minnesota winter. That's how the church as a family is supposed to look. Now, there's um, a, a leader in our church planning network, the Acts 29, um, who is sort of like the, he's like the grandpa of the network. Uh, his name is um, Dr. Ray Ortland, and I don't do this often, but I, I actually want to like teach for just a couple minutes his own notes on this dynamic of environment. I want to teach about what he calls gospel culture. Because his main thesis, and I believe his greatest contribution to our network and perhaps to the church more broadly, is that gospel doctrine, the truth of the message of Jesus, is to produce a gospel culture. That a right relationship with God 
is supposed to bring about all kinds of right and beautiful relationships with others, to change the environment of a community such that it feels like a different place than Minnesota winter. But here's what he says. He says, um, what is gospel doctrine? Let's just get sort of clear on what is, what is the, the doctrine, the truth of the gospel? Well, it's the biblical message of undeserving grace. Like the biblical message of divine grace for those who in no way merit it and could no way earn it. It is God through the perfect life, through the atoning death, through the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, Jesus rescuing his people from sin, from the wrath of God into full peace and harmony with God. It is the promise of the full restoration of all things that we didn't have anything to do with it and don't deserve it at all. It is sheer grace towards us. Think about Colossians chapter two, right? We've been studying this the last month. It's that message of we were dead in trespasses and now alive. We were far from God. He's brought us near, right? We were hostile to God. He's reconciled us. He's, in many ways, we were at odds with him. He's made peace with us. It is this incredible message of grace for those who don't deserve it at all. That's gospel doctrine. But what is gospel culture? Well, gospel culture is chapter three. Not chapter two, chapter three. It's the change in behavior, the change of relating, the kind of beauty that forms among brothers and sisters in Christ as they live out this message together in a loving family. Culture is the shared experience of divine grace for the undeserving. It's this corporate sort of incarnation, like visible manifestation of the biblical message in relationships. It's this shift in vibe, in feel, in tone, the priorities, the aroma, the honesty, the freedom, the gentleness, the beauty of that kind of community, the humility, the joyfulness. It just feels different. It's the whole of human reality sweetened by grace and made new. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because sometimes churches can preach gospel doctrine and really fail or miss on gospel culture. Both of them actually take a lot of work and intention. Now, it's not an easy thing to preach the truth from the scriptures and to preach it in ways that make sense and ways that encourage a group of believers. Gospel doctrine matters, right? But gospel culture tends to require more finesse and wisdom, more maturity and ability to to nuance and press the the goodness of grace into the relationships of people. It's necessary because... Gospel faithfulness, like faithfulness to Jesus, is about more than just purity of thought. It's about beauty of relationships. Like the gospel creates a kind of family that is unique. And it should, and and that's what Paul's pushing here in chapter 3, is that for these young Christians, for them to grow up in the faith, and for the church to grow towards maturity, would mean that it begins to look and resemble Jesus and the way they treat one another. Now, the weird thing is it's possible for a church to teach gospel doctrine 
but to be speaking a completely different message by its culture. My hunch is that you here this morning have experienced both. You've probably experienced um, a church where the, the feel of people that you've gotten to know there feels a bit like that greenhouse, like the tropics trail, so different and like a breath of fresh air. But you probably also experienced a kind of church where there's a disconnect between what is said and what is felt. There's a disconnect between what is taught and, and, and how things are lived out. And, and the reality of that is sad and, and points that are, are still remaining brokenness and sinfulness. But what Paul, I believe, is saying and what Ray Ortland's contribution that he's making is, is that gospel doctrine and culture go together. And the effect is incredibly powerful. So let's just step back a minute and go here. We're in chapter three. And we have seen this promise and this challenge that if we've been raised to new life with Christ, we are to live a new life with Christ. If we have been reconciled to God, we're supposed to grow and begin to resemble the God whom we love. And last week, what I did um, is looked at the first half of this chapter. We talked about what it means to put off certain things, that because we have been raised with Christ and we now are to live resurrected, we are supposed to stop doing some things. But not just stop, like taking off clothes as you get into the greenhouse. Like we are supposed to put on things. And in this set of verses, verses 12 through 17, Paul is saying, put on these things. Really, he's saying, put on Christ. Christ is to be what you wear. Christ is to be what you enrobe yourself in. Christ is to be the, the fitting garb, the fitting um, attire for all of your life. And let me read through this again, and I want to show you what I believe are the four things that he's saying to put on. There are other ways that you could probably teach this passage, but this seemed the most logical to me. Um, and they all, as you look at sometimes in the English, but especially in the original language, which is Greek in this case, they all are basically something attached to God, right? So think about it this way. Here's our first one. This one's the hardest. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Chosen ones is a single phrase that means the elect of God. So put on as elect of God, as chosen of God, that's the key. Holy and beloved are describing what it means to be chosen. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So number one thing to put on is what I believe is beloved, and we'll see the, the end of that whole section here in a second. Let's keep reading on to verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against each other, another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love. Put on doesn't, doesn't, doesn't occur in the Greek. That's added in to help you keep the train of thought. So he's saying, above all these, love. And I think by saying that, what he's doing is wrapping a few verses together in that whole idea of what it means to put on Christ is to put on love. That's what's behind the elect, the chosen of God, those who are beloved and holy. And that's what's behind this phrase here, love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So first thing that we need to put on is to put on love, the love of God, the love of Christ. Here's the second thing. Going on to verse 15. And let the peace of Christ, 
Only two words there, right? So it's like peace, Christ. That's the second one. Put on the love of Christ and then put on the peace of Christ. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Love of Christ, peace of Christ. Okay, keep going to verse 16. And then let the, number three, word of Christ dwell in you richly. Same sort of grouping together of something in Jesus. Third of, word of Christ is the third piece of clothing. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then here's the last one, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name Jesus, coupled together. So put on the love of Jesus, love of Christ, put on the peace of Christ, put on the word of Christ, and then put on the name of Christ is the flow, I believe, of this passage. Four things Paul is saying, this is what it means to put on the clothing of Christ. And as you do, therefore live in a changed way and begin to shape a gospel culture, a gospel greenhouse. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to look at each of those things briefly, right? The, the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. So that we can then, as a community, begin to figure out how to put those on going forward. So here we are. To live resurrected, to live new, you've got to put on the love of Christ. Here it is in verse 12 again, if we go back. Put on then as God's chosen ones, remember, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved. The, the, this, this phrase, holy and beloved, is the description from the Old Testament of what it means to be chosen. God's people throughout history were those who he had selected. He had chosen. The people of Israel didn't come and find the Lord, but he sought them out. He created them out of nothing. In many ways, they were just a people. They were no people at all. They were, they were a man. God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to choose you and make out of you a great nation. I'm going to set my love, my steadfast love upon you. And not just you, but your descendants and descendants and descendants so that your family would become as many as the host, the stars of heaven. And then God says when he takes his people out of Egypt, it wasn't because you were bigger. It wasn't because you were better. It wasn't because you were in any way like the standout in the crowd that I said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and bring you into a land and make you my people. Why did, he, why did I do that, God says? Well, it's because I love you. And I've set my love upon you. And I've chose you. And not only do I love you, and I'm going to make a relationship with you based on love, covenant love, steadfast love, that love is going to also separate you. It's going to make you distinct. It's going to make you holy. And I want you to be holy as I am holy. And so what God is saying here is that to put on Christ is to put on the love of Christ, a kind of choosing of God where he's separated you for the purposes of a loving relationship with him and for living distinctly in the world. And the way in which you're going to live distinctly as a Christian is, of course, these five things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Notice five things. 
in the previous paragraph, there were two lists, each with five things. The sins of our members of our body, often to deal, dealing with sexuality and idolatry, and then the sins of our mouth, the ways in which we speak and create division and destruction within community. And he's saying, hey, if you put these things on, those things go away. Kindness, humility, patience. And then he goes on, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Because what will happen, even in a Christian community, even in a gospel community, is that people will get offended. You will be sinned against and you will sin against. And so the dynamic that's distinctly Christian is for forgiveness to be extended and for forgiveness to be received. I was, it's actually one of the most like helpful marks of a healthy Christian community. Is there offense happening? Because it's usually happening, and the question is whether it's actually getting talked about, right? So, it, it, like, have you been slighted? Have you been hurt? Have you been misunderstood? Like, has somebody stepped on your toes? Has somebody been unkind? And if those things can come to the surface, and then we can extend the forgiveness that Jesus has given us to others, something really powerful happens in terms of gospel culture. But I was, I was talking with um, one of my mentors, um, our, one of the coaches for our church, and he said to me, um, I love talking with this guy because it's like, you can learn in two minutes what it took him like two decades to learn, right? So he's like, he's going to tell you like something that it took forever for him to learn. And then there's a slight chance that I'll learn it that first time, but you know, like I've at least heard it. Um, and he said, if there was something he could preach on and would preach on, as a church leader, every year, without fail of the church's life, of like the, the top list, the top three things, one of them would be forgiveness. He says it's that important for Christian community. That there is often so much unacknowledged hurt. There's so much wrong that's been done and not been talked about, forgiven. And so what I what I want to encourage you to is one of the ways that you put on the love of Christ is to realize very clearly that you are going to need to ask forgiveness of others and you are going to need to extend forgiveness to others. That the love of Christ is shown so powerfully in forgiveness that God would forgive our sins. Forgiveness always involves bearing the cost of something, right? Jesus absorbed the cost of all of our wrong to, to God and to him upon the cross. And therefore, because of great love, he took that cost and then he extended grace such a powerful demonstration of love. I think there's a slide about forgiveness. Travis, do you see it down there? I just want to like run through some really practical things you can do when you're trying to acknowledge that you need to be forgiven or extending forgiveness. This is a simple resource from Peacemaker Ministries, but they say you need to address everyone involved. If your sin's been really public, you should repent publicly. If it's been private, you should repent privately. You should avoid using, well, if this happened, I wouldn't have done that. Or, but, or, but, but maybe, 
you should avoid qualifying language and admit specifically, this is what I've done wrong, and I need to own it. You need to acknowledge the hurt of another. If something you said, if something you've done has caused hurt to someone, you need to say, I see that it hurts you, and it grieves me that it did. You need to accept the consequences. Sometimes there are consequences to our actions, even when forgiveness happens. You need to alter your behavior. It does no good for you to say, and I made this mistake plenty, plenty early on in my marriage. I don't do it anymore at all. Um, I never say, like, hey, will you forgive me for this, and then keep on doing it again, right? <laughs> no, what we're to do is ask forgiveness for something, and then we're to alter our behavior so that we don't do it again. We're to ask specifically, hey, hey, could you forgive me for that? Would you be willing to forgive me for that? And then you need to allow time. You need to allow time for someone to respond. And as you've clearly seen, pastors aren't excluded from this, right? <laughs> like I'm gonna, there are going to be times when I'm going to need to ask forgiveness from you. There are going to be times where you're going to need to ask forgiveness from me and I'll need to extend it. Right? I'm still flawed in many ways. My calling means that I, I need to live in a way that's above reproach, in a way that is befitting of spiritual leadership. But I'll never live flawlessly. And there'll be times when I do need to ask for your forgiveness and extend it to you as well. So let me ask, who do you, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? There's nothing quite that shows the love of Christ like this dynamic of forgiveness. And to live resurrected, church, we need to put on the love of Christ. Love of Christ is the first clothing. Here's the second one. To live resurrected, you've got to put on the peace of Christ. Let's keep reading here, right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called as one body, and be thankful Notice how each of these phrases, like chosen ones and peace of Christ and word of Christ, comes with a verb on the end of it or connected to it. So let the peace of Christ rule, let it judge, let it arbitrate in the matters of conflict that you have. One of the things that I love and is always refreshing for me is to talk with people who are not from Minnesota. I had a conversation with, with someone who's not originally from Minnesota recently, and they were just talking about the dynamic of relating to people who are from here and how sometimes they're not always forthcoming. Like you, you, you go somewhere else in the country and people are just like, this is who I am. Like this is, this is, this is what I think. This is, what I, this is how I feel. And sometimes in Minnesota, we're just like, no, we're going to be nice. Um, and I've heard it described that it's like we have a low first wall, right? We can be pleasant, nice, engaged with others, but we have a very high second wall, like you can't get back there. It's almost as if we love talking over the fence, but we don't really want anybody to come in behind the fence. Like that's sort of the way that we do things here by default in Minnesota. And the reality of that is um, conflict is real interesting here. <laughs> right? Conflict is real challenging here. Um, and when you encounter conflict, right, you have those three classic responses, right? You fight, there's flight, or there's freeze, right? Some people just freeze up. I don't know what to do now that there's tension. Some people are like, let's go. I'm going to win it, right? And let's fight. Other people are like, I see there's a problem. I'll see you later. 
Um, those are sort of the natural ways that we tend to relate in conflict. And, and, and it's here, I think, where the culture of Minnesota needs some correction by the culture of Christ, by the kind of relational patterns of Jesus, such that when we experience conflict, our judge, our rule of action, our arbitrator is not niceness, but is the peace of Christ. We think less about what is pleasant, but more about what is peacemaking. And oftentimes that involves acknowledging tension, conflict, and disagreement. Is there a conflict that you're feeling right now? And if it's not a conflict relationally out there, is there a decision that you're making in here with a lack of peace? Is there a relationship that's breaking in your life? But there is nothing that quite shows off the peace of God like peace in relationships in a Christian community. Right? It is true that, that because of Jesus, we have peace by the blood of his cross. That's what Colossians 1 says, that he, is, he has made peace between us and the maker of all things, and we can be reconciled and united to our creator. But not only is there a peace vertical that's possible by the gospel, there is a peace horizontal that is possible by the gospel. And when that peace happens among Christians, it's powerful. I mean, think about what Paul's already said here in this book. He said that in Christ, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, no circumcised, uncircumcised, right? No slave, no free, right? No Scythian, bar barbarian. Like he's saying all of these distinctions that tend to make for conflict and division because of Jesus, there's a way for harmony and peace to happen amid people who are very different from one another. And not only that, hasn't he said here in the, in the text, it says, um, to which indeed you were called in one body. Hasn't he already said that the church is like a body? That the church is like hands and feet, like shoulders and knees, like fingers and toes, that it's like a, a mind and a heart, a lungs and a spine. Like there are parts of the body. And because the body is one, the church can be one because of the peace and power of Jesus. To live resurrected, you got to put on the peace of Christ. And I am guessing that this morning there's got to be an area in your life where you need peace. Like there is some place in your life, in your story, where you lack some peace, either whether that's personally for you or whether that's relationally for you, or perhaps it's vertically. You're not quite at peace with God, your creator, right? But but what's here and what's true this morning is that the Prince of Peace wants to meet with you. Jesus, the one who is your peace, has come and made peace. And that's supposed to land in our real lives, in our, in our actual relationships. So put on the peace of Christ. Put on the love of Christ. And now put on the word of Christ. Here we are in verse 16. Let the word of Christ, some translations might say the message of Christ, Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The verb here, of course, with word of Christ is dwell. Like, so what are we supposed to do with the message, the word about Jesus? 
We're supposed to live in it. Like we're supposed to make it our home. We are supposed to dwell there, inhabit it, make it the place that we stay. And I believe he's actually not simply talking about the book. He's talking about the message of the book. He's talking about the word of Christ, of of who he is and what he has done. Recently, I had a conversation with um, one of my girls who has a habit of um, reading the Bible in the mornings. She sees her mom and I doing that regularly, and she just sort of picked up the habit. That's kind of the way the family of God works, right? You see something, and you just start to sort of pattern, pick it up. And um, the girl's a voracious I mean, reader. She just like plows through books of the Bible. And, um, and so I had this conversation with her. I was, like, I was like, hey, you know, I know you've seen me reading, but I wanted to talk with you about some, one of the things that I do while I'm reading. And I said, I, I, I do read both Old Testament and New Testament. And, but what are the things that I'm always trying to do as I intake God's word? Is I'm trying to relax in it. Like I'm trying to get to the spot where there's something about Jesus. There's something about God's character. There's some word of hope that I can come to for the day or for the moment and exhale. When you can relax in Jesus, I think you're getting close to what the Bible's talking about when it says trusting him. Right? When there is something about Jesus that makes you exhale and go, yes, Lord, you are my peace. Yes, Lord, you do love me. Yes, Lord, I have been forgiven. Yes, Lord, you are with me. And you can exhale that's what I think it means to make the word of Christ your home, to dwell upon it such that you're willing to stay there and breathe there. And I would exhort you, that's the kind of pattern I want our church to create. Not just, I do want us to read the Bible, but I also want us to dwell upon the word of Christ. Because when we do, and especially when we teach and admonish, that's picking up the language of chapter 1 which is Paul says, this is how you grow to maturity. I'm laboring, I'm striving with everything in me so that I would present others mature, growing up. And how are we going to do that? We're going to teach with all wisdom. We're going to admonish and warn with all wisdom. And we're going to present Christ to every specific issue and circumstance in life so that we as as a people might relax in him. But here's the deal. Sometimes reading don't work. Sometimes telling yourself to relax don't work. Sometimes it only helps if you sing a song. Now, I'm, I'm serious. Like, there's some, there's some places you get where life feels so heavy and overwhelming, and the only thing that will awaken your senses is to sing a melody. They're the only thing that will work to, to cut through the heaviness is to is to belt out a refrain. Even if you aren't quite sure you believe it in the moment, the, the music and, 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 the, and the words have a way of affecting our minds and our souls so powerfully that, that to really help us, we need music. 
And God's made us for that. And not just any kind of music or not just one kind of music, but all kinds of music that encourage and build up. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's why we sing all kinds of different music here at church, right? We sing some that are hymns that feel real old school. We sing some that are funky and kind of make you want to move, right? We sing some that are big crescendos and make you want to shout. We sing some that are still and quiet, make you want to reflect because there's a song for that. And your soul sometimes needs a song to cue you in to the riches of Christ and to produce a kind of thankfulness in you to God. So where do you need the word of Christ, the word of hope, the word of truth this morning? Because to live resurrected, you got to put on the word of Christ and not put it on once, but live in it always. And then last, to live resurrected, you've got to put on the name of the Lord Jesus. You see it here? Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Name Christ. Name Lord Christ is the sandwich here that makes for the last piece of clothing. And I believe it's the clothing that should cover all. Whatever you do, wherever you are, and he says it explicitly here, you are to do it in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, meaning whatever you make, whatever you perform, whatever you construct or build or where you serve, anything you are doing, like a necklace that you wear always or like the ring if you're married on your finger, you are to do it in the name of Jesus. What's that mean? Do you remember that more famous passage at the end of Matthew's gospel where it says we're supposed to make disciples, right? That the church is called to make disciples. It's the most basic description of what it means for the church to live on the mission of Jesus. And what do you say? Make disciples, baptizing them where? Into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a family deal. The name, of course, means the reputation, the family name of Jesus. And he's saying here that in every circumstance, in whatever you are doing, you are to represent the new family of Jesus that you belong to. You belong to him, and you are to increasingly learn how to behave like him. You are to put on the name of Jesus and to represent him and what he's about in everything that you do, at work and at play, in your neighborhood, with your family, with your friends, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is to be your focus. And that's the kind of clothing that produces a really different motivation and honestly a very different outcome within your life and with the life of a community. When you say, I want to be about the glory in the name of Jesus. So here, what I want to do is ask you to take action. I want to ask you to take action in the month of May, it's May 1st, by praying for one of these things every day. Maybe you're compelled by the peace of Christ. Maybe it's the love of Christ, being chosen by God. Maybe it's the word of Christ. Maybe it's the name of Christ. Think about a piece of clothing that you could pray for yourself every day, Lord, help me put this on so that I might grow more and more like you. 
And then not only am I going to ask you to pray that for yourself, I want to ask you to pray that for someone else. I want to take this phrase that we're to pray for, for open doors for the gospel, and I want to put it here where I think it belongs, which is that we would be praying for people to experience the gospel greenhouse that we have, to experience the kind of humidity and warmth, the tone and feel of grace that the church can become. What if we learn to think about evangelism less as I need to go and make an argument to convince someone, less about argument and more about environment. I need to pray. I need to invite. I need to hold out the hope of a kind of love and peace and truth and hope and purpose in life that the people around me are actually craving for. Like, that's to ask the question, who, like, who, who is longing for these things that you know? Like, who in your neighborhood? Who in your workplace? Who where you do hobbies is longing for a greenhouse like this? a place of love and peace and joy and hope? Who do you have a spiritual burden for? And who would you long would know the love of Christ like you do? That's what I want you to pray. Pray for yourself and then pray for someone else to experience the goodness of Jesus that you found. And what we're going to do is we're going to use this simple tool. It's called Who is Your One? Now, likely you don't have just one, person that comes to mind, but I'm going to press you to choose one, write down at least a name. And we're not going to like tear off the perforated and collect them all or something, but this is for you to say, who am I praying for? That they would experience the kind of clothing of Christ that I have, that they would know the hope that I have found, the love that peace that I have found. And then what there is on this bookmark is a passage for you to pray every day of the month and to pray for yourself and to pray for that person. And I want to challenge you to do that so that we might grow as a community of faithful prayer. This you can take with you. You can stick anywhere you want. On the tables out in the lobby, there's actually a booklet with a page that has each of these scriptures printed out, a space for you to journal and write, and for you to use day by day as you pray for others this month and you pray for yourself this month. One of our strategic goals as a church this spring was just to pray. And to ask the Lord to save the lost, right? Those who don't know Christ. And to send laborers, those who would make disciples with us. So what Travis is going to do, um, and maybe somebody will jump up to help him. He's going to hand out to all of you one of these. It's old school. We're giving handouts. Um, you don't need to turn this in. It's not your homework. But it's for you. So that you might take a practical step of praying for yourself and praying for others this month. And while they hand those out, what I want to do is close us in prayer and invite us to respond here in the moment um, and ask for grace to respond faithfully in this way for the month.